Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Revealing the truth behind the games we play. Coming up in this episode. How the brain needs to recover. And I've seen hundreds of stress fractures in adolescent cricketers. So I think backs eventually come and haunt most people. Research will show you that your stability muscles are activated 50 to 100 milliseconds before any other muscles. So you need to pull up your scrotum once in a while. So welcome to the Science of Sports. My name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm along here with uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And today we have, in the keeping with our theme around the Cricket World Cup that's happening at the moment, uh, Dr. Janine Gray, who is a contract researcher for Cricket South Africa, a lecturer at the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the Department of Human Biology, Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Cape Town, a physiotherapy consultant for private clients. Her qualifications include a PhD at the University of Cape Town in 2012, and this is one subject we're going to be covering a lot in the podcast today. The thesis title was Lower Back Pain in Adolescent Fast Bowlers. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, that. And she's got specific interest um, is a research group at the moment on injuries and medical conditions associated with sport and exercise, exercise performance and shoulder injury in cricket, um, which we'll touch on a bit later as well. But uh, Janine, how did you get involved in cricket research? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a niche in many ways, isn't it? Well, it certainly was when I started. Um, I think... My mother loved cricket, and so I started watching. I can remember getting up um, very early to watch the World Cup in um, Oz, New Zealand. The first 22 of, yeah. 22 of one ball. Yeah, oh, very, yeah. So we have, I've watched cricket all my life. And then when I, I did honors at sports science, and I was interested in swimmer's shoulder from a mm-hmm. clinical point of view and cricketer's lower back. I was seeing a lot of cricketer's lower back. And I went and met with um, Prof Noakes and said these were my two ideas. And it was very quickly was channeled into cricket. And and then I just got involved with Cricket South Africa and yeah, mm. supervising students doing different projects in the area. And so yeah. I what love do you cricket. what do you love about cricket as a fan? I mean, is it is it the tactics? I mean, let's ask you a question. It's got nothing to do with any of the research you're doing. But twenty twenty or test? What do you like? That's a difficult question. It's a we... difficult question. Like, and uh, interestingly, my mother was used to watch take five days of work when she was in her twenties and go and watch test cricket. Wow. So we've I've always watched it and loved it. Mm. Um, I think with life having got busy, I probably have to say twenty twenty, like really? just because it's quick and I think it's got challenges. It's introduced a whole lot of new challenges to both science and. Mm. the clinical aspect of managing mm. cricket that I think we've learned a lot from it but mm, yeah. yeah I think but is it cricket it's in- it's a very it's a very different game yeah. it's, it's interesting because we spoke to Gary this was our previous pod obviously for the listeners check it out and he was saying that he's also a bigger fan of 2020 and that it's more complex than test cricket yeah. because there are more moving parts margins for error are maybe a little smaller and there are more things you have to think about batting or bowling so you're not the first person to say that in that very chair. 
<laughs> I think it's a very um it's it, it requires almost a different cricketer. Yeah. So um that's been quite interesting and I think also for me having been involved more recently in shoulder injuries in cricket the thing that has brought them to the fore is is T20 cricket because yeah. that is what you can't afford to miss field or have a sore shoulder. Yeah. Because getting the ball back to the wickets as quickly as you can is paramount. So, yeah, I think it's brought out some very interesting aspects to cricket. But I can quite easily sit, go to a test match <laughs> and sit there the whole day and be quite happy. Do you do you love cricket more now because you study it, or did you has your has your interest in cricket changed? It's definitely changed. So you're not as passionate a fan anymore. No, you're... I see it quite differently. And in fact, having worked with some of the players, I, I find watching it when I've been working with them to bring them back from injury actually very stressful because then yeah. you've got the whole day to hope that they they don't break down so i think that the stress is certainly different um yeah so one of the things that we're going to obviously talk a bit about later on in the podcast is you know the sort of injuries that players have to deal with but cricket in many ways almost feels like it's a very unnatural sport you compare it to something like running where we're kind of almost designed to 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 run but Cricket is just this, you know, side of movements. Even in batting, it's it's a kind of weird thing. Is it one of those sports that is really difficult to treat as a clinician and somebody researching into the space because it is just something you wouldn't normally do? It is very, um, very different. The thing that with cricket that is so different is the skill that you require. Mm. You know, it's not just about being fit and strong. It's about the skill. It's about being able to see the ball in a certain way. There's so many aspects to it, um, to an injury. Yeah. How does that affect your clinical decision-making when you see an injured player, though? Because if you're seeing a fast bowler, how does, how does the skill that player acquires affect your assessment and intervention? Or is it just simply a question of he's got a side strain and we just have to treat that first and the skill's someone else's issue? Well, I like, to, I like to believe that clinicians need to be working very closely with coaches. And I think we need to be very much part of taking a player back. I've recently become very interested in the, 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 how the brain needs to recover from injury and what we need to do with a player to take away the fear of injury. Mm. So I work a lot on the, the field with cricketers and get them to bowl while I'm there and talk them through experiences, making sure the intensity is high enough when they return to play. So, but I certainly would never be the one correcting technique, you know, but I'd like to you know, work with yeah. a coach like that. So we do evaluate, I always look at the bowling biomechanics from a back point of view. So if I've got somebody with back injuries, we assess their back and I will say, that's not great for back, um, for their back, but sometimes that's great for performance. So then it's about finding a solution to that so is it that we then strengthen the back so that they can keep using the technique which is beneficial from a performance point of view but not great for injury or do we find a compromise in it so I think it is a lot more complex but maybe I just say that because I see cricket as more than I do you, you touched a bit on the on the mind side of things just explain it a bit more how does the mind affect whether a player well the brain gets right? or the, the brain, brain. yeah, yeah. yeah. Why is I the always, brain? So, sorry I always make that distinction because mind Let's people think about all these sort of soft, airy, fairy things. Brain mm. is still physiology. Yeah. So I always bring it back there. So sorry and, to and that, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. sort of the area that I've been looking at, just out of really an interest for, and I'm very interested in adolescent sportsmen, mm. Um, mm. and just their brain is developing. And what makes an elite performer are things like 
attention, focus, your um, visual spatial ability, which is all a brain function, you yeah. know, more than the mental health of, of, of cricketers, which obviously is a whole nother area. But recovering from an injury, there's not a huge amount of evidence on it yet, but there seems to be a huge... Players have to get over the fear of re-injuring. And if you think about a fast bowler coming in to bowl a delivery, when his front foot strikes the, the pitch, four to six times his body weight goes through his foot. Through one foot. Yeah, so I yeah. always say, like, take someone like Morning Morkel, say he's 90 kilograms and you've got five times his body weight coming through. Mm. That's 450 kilograms of force that the body has to now deal with. Mm. In like one-tenth of a second. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you need to convince the athlete's brain that he can do that and that's that's part of rehab you know where, where are we just clinically because i remember a few years ago there was this concept of you you remember pain because of the plasticity in your in your brain so long after the hamstring the knee the ankle injury is actually resolved and that ankle looks structurally perfect the brain still remembers the injury so is that still a big clinical focus i, I mean i'm not in this field anymore so well I must say, I've it's a new field, uh, like a, a returning field for me, and I'm more and more and working in it and finding that it's quite a significant part. So instead of like physios would often say to somebody, "What is your pain? One out of ten, you know, like one, you know, or zero, nothing, ten most." I actually now do that for confidence and fear, mm. because and you've got to have a good relationship with the player because if they think you're the one keeping them off the field, they may not be honest about that. But it's amazing to me how often you can ask that question and they say, mm, fear's five out of 10, four out of 10. That's a significant barrier to being able to allow your body to just let mm. loose. So, yeah. It's so, in other words, your brain is protecting your body against potentially being injured again. So you're holding back and sort of protect. So a fast butter holding himself back can't be a fast butter anymore, essentially. Well, one of the other areas, and my thesis actually looked at that in youngsters, we looked at trunk muscle function once they had back pain or not and in the trunk muscles there are two types of muscles so there's a stabilizer muscle and there's been a lot of research to show that is directly controlled by the brain so it doesn't work on the same reflex arc, um, arcs as the more global mover muscles mm. and pain actually switches those muscles off and they don't necessarily switch on when the pain goes away mm. And then you have the global muscles that then come in to often almost block the movement um, in response to pain. Now, that's great when you've first been injured because it almost splints your spine, for instance, when it's just happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it's protective. But you can't go back and play sport like that because yeah. it, number one will change your movement patterns hugely. And number two, all the compressive loads of global muscles working like that will actually damage your back long term. Mm -hmm. So that is another area where we have to work on the brain switching on those muscles. Sure. And it has huge performance implications. I worked with some of the, the Proteus bowlers who were battling to actually recover after each delivery. They couldn't catch their breath. And when you retrain the local muscles, because obviously transversus abdominis is the one that goes around the trunk, um, but it works with the pelvic and the diaphragm fibers in that specifically to um, manage load through the trunk and if you get that system working people mm. breathe better so they sure. recover better after delivery so 
I like to sell it as a performance thing as well as protective in the back. And so the, the brain plays a huge role in that one too. So mm. not only could there be a fear, but it actually changes how muscles function. So, mm. so effectively what's happening is they're injured and then their nervous system is becoming excessively conservative. You have to then override that, teach them that they have permission to activate the muscles the way they should. But then there must be quite a lot of tension because a lot of what you've just said now is why you would want to be very sure the player is ready to go back to play. 100%. But the coach and the player is saying, I want to go, there's no more pain. And then you're actually just laying down the next layer that will cause an injury in three months' time, either a different or the same one. So the recurring re-injury issue must be a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, working particularly with elite sports, this return to play is a constant headache for clinicians. Um, I think we send players back far too early generally. Um, and I've been, I do that, I've done that too. You know, you want to get somebody back, they appear to be ready. But um, when we look at return to play protocols, when people actually do research, so they, they're really sure about when somebody goes back to, re, to, to play, it's much longer than mm -hmm. we do it. Um, we were talking earlier about the hamstring injuries. So they did, um, Askling is a, um, a researcher who looked at hamstring injuries mm -hmm. and he looked at a lengthening protocol versus a normal conservative protocol. And when he looked at his, his lengthening protocol, found it to be a lot more effective. It, um, they returned to play a lot quicker, but it was at 49 days versus 86. 49 days is a month and a half. Yeah. Nobody stays out of elite sport for a month and a half after a hamstring injury. And that's because there's pressure not only in the players to perform because they've got contracts with their teams, but also the fact that it's a year-round game now, isn't it? It isn't Absolutely. just six months. Yeah. yeah. So I think those are all very real um, challenges yeah. when managing. Actually, I you would say elite sport. You see it in the school kids. Yeah. The desperate need to go back against to play against their arch rival or just, you know, their parents don't want them out of the team for too long in case, in case they lose their position. I mean, that's school sport. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole talk there. Is, is there a way of resolving that? I mean, if you had to say, okay, well, here's, here's what I would do if I was the decision maker in this space. What, what would you advise everything from schoolboy level to elite level to do as a, as a protocol from now on? Oh, that would if, be if it was, a if it was your position. choice. I, I certainly would keep players out for longer. I would, and number one, mm. just to make sure that they've gone through the full strengthening. You know, it takes six to 12 weeks to strengthen a muscle. So mm. if it has been torn, why do we assume we can do it in two weeks when standard pro protocols say six to 12 weeks? So I, I would certainly allow them to go back a bit later. But the other big difference that I would do, and it's something that I'm finding with the cricketers, the, um, the bowlers, I would strengthen them a lot more. Yeah. I think the, there's an assumption that if you play your sport, you're strong, mm. and that is not the case at all. So I would definitely make sure that the strengthening component of their rehab is mm. significant. Mm. Um, it just makes sense. If you've got strong legs as a bowler, that 450 kilograms of force that we were talking about starts to be dissipated by the calves, the hamstrings, and the thighs before it even gets to your lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would. I think strengthening is huge. It sounds a little bit like we're in still the quite early stages of understanding these links between 
injuries, risk factors, performance in crickets. <clears throat> and you said yourself that when you started out, no one was really doing it. Mm. And how long ago was that? 20 years? <laughs> At least, yeah. <laughs> has, the, has the attitude towards your input as a clinician changed over 20 years in crickets or are they still as resistant today as I imagine they would have been early on? Because maybe they weren't actually, maybe I'm assuming too much. But when you come along to a fast bowler and you say, look, these are the things that are causing your injuries. We need to change this and this and this. Do the bowlers and the coaches used to say, uh, this is cricket. What do you know as a physio? Or were they always receptive? Um, I think because I was doing research in it, I think that helped the credibility a little bit. So I do think that did help. I must say crickets, as Cricket South Africa, have always embraced the science part of it. I think the challenge is, and I think it's the challenge in research, is this jumping from one thing to another. So we look at biomechanics being the cause of lower back pain in fast bowlers. Then it's the acute chronic workload. Then it's musculoskeletal variables. Mm. And actually the answer lies in all of them and probably a whole bunch of variables we don't even know about yet. And I think that's the complexity. It's to try and make sure you've addressed as many of those variables instead of just focusing on one. Um, and with the, with the bowlers, I have always found, and it's very much how physio is moving, education of our, our patients, whether they're cricketers or rugby players or, you know, like a, the sedentary mom at home, is very much about education. If they understand why they are doing this exercise or why they need to strengthen that part, they actually um much happier to do it um, and that's speaking to the brain again mm -hmm. it, the brain understands why it has to do it and like part of big group of the cricketers that I looked at for a long time because my, my thesis was 14 to 16 year old boys mm -hmm. and I mean if there is a group that are less in touch with their body I haven't met them yet because <laughs> you know they've grown everything's and they've there's done a lot all of testosterone big, yeah, yeah. yeah but even they understood the need for local muscle stability because it we spent time explaining it, they would engage it and get it right. So we need to, as clinicians, explain to our patients exactly what it is we're trying to achieve. Mm. Otherwise, it becomes this passive process, and we know that doesn't work. And I have no research to back this up, but I think it certainly doesn't work with regards to the brain. Yeah, The brain has to engage in rehab. Let's, let's talk specifically about the, the, the back. I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times now, one of your key components as we were building up towards this podcast you're talking about how 20 years ago the modern thinking or that the modern thinking back then was very different from what you understand now about why low back problems particularly in fast bowlers. just explain what it was like back then why the the, the research was potentially wrong well when it, when we started and my interest was in biomechanics so mm. I wanted to look at the bowling biomechanics and then we had looked at a a part of the bowling action, which was called counter-rotation of the shoulders. Now, really what that is, is when you land with your back foot, your shoulders are somewhere between facing the batsman or being in a more side-on action. Mm -hmm. But from that position, they actually rotate further away from the batsman some more. And actually, it's a beneficial process. It's, it's, like a loading, it's loading the sling, I suppose, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. It's winding up you know yeah. and so you can release but what they found was that the counter rotation in bowlers that went on to develop back pain was greater so the, 
And there it was either, some studies said greater than 20, 30, even 40 were some degrees. Um, so we were really looking at what happened at Backfoot and just after Backfoot. And that's how that whole side-on, mixed-action, front-on classification came about. So just explain that. So that's three, three ways to classify a bowling action based on the degree of rotation? Yes, so also, also the position of the body. So obviously a side-on bowler is more facing away from the batsman. Um, so I'm thinking... What was the bowler's name? Jeff Thompson from Australia. Yes. Uh, modern cricketers who, who use that, would you say? Actually, fewer and fewer people use side-on techniques. So like when I did my study, we did 45 adolescents and they were all um, fairly high-performance um, fast bowlers. There were three um, mm. that used the side-on action. So it's actually based on the classifications that were given at the time. One more He must be a side-on bowler i mean if you just think about his action yeah he became more open as as he got older but yeah he, he probably would so, be one of your okay classics. so it was side-on and then the other extreme was uh, was front a front-on and and they used to say that a front-on bowler was your strong bowler it, it was the bigger more muscular guy because he didn't use his sort of the kinetic chain as much as force just to to deliver the ball and then the um, mixed is, is is it halfway between them? So what it means is your legs are in one and okay. your upper body is in the other. And what they right. thought was that caused lumbar torsion. So okay. a rotation at the spine and that that was what caused pain. And then... And so you'd have been, sorry, so you'd have been excited to discover that because now you had, in theory, a ready-made solution to an injury is let's just push you one way or the other. You're mixed... That's the risk. Let's change you either to side on or off. That was what was happening in the turn of the what? When would this have been? Twenty years odd ago. Yeah. So I would have. Yeah. So I would have. I collected a lot of that data in ninety eight, and so it had been going for ten yeah. years before. I was certainly not novel in the, all the classifications had been well laid down before so, that. But then, as usually happens in science, the plot thickened. Right? Uh, so where, where did that take us? Yeah. So over the years, they never the link between this counter rotation was we could never find out what the lumbar connection was. And so more and more studies then started to look throughout the delivery stride. And then they found that the, the variable that seems to be most linked is lateral flexion. So that's almost the falling away so of, towards the non-dominant side, away from your bowling arm. When the weight is on the front leg and I'm coming over foot. it at release. Yeah. yeah okay. So at the last World Cup conference we had um, in Australia... Um, Bruce Elliott, who was, had done a lot of the initial research in this area, he actually presented this lovely talk summing up the biomechanics and said, actually, we'd been looking at the wrong part. Um, so we were looking at rotation shoulders, where this was actually lateral flexion at the wrong time. Um, so we were looking back foot, and actually the variable that seems to be most linked now is front foot. So when we say, just for listeners also to simplify this, when we say the variable most linked, we're saying, right, there's a group of players with an injury. What makes them different from the players who are not injured? Yeah. Turns out that when you're injured, it's because, well, you have this greater lateral flexion. Yeah, so it's almost like in coaching terms, they'd call it falling away after ball release. So the solution yeah. would be? 
Um, is so it that's, strength that's, well, to resist falling away or is it a conscious t- technical so adjustment? So it would be quite interesting if Gary and I were sitting here together because I I, I'm not sure where we he sit with that. that. No, Gary spoke about batting for oh, an okay. hour. So All right. you've, got, you've got the ball so in I your hand, the, you okay. have the bat, so you do what you... <laughs> so I would like to think, I think changing a bowling action is incredibly difficult. It's ingrained, as you said before, it happens in like a split second. I don't think the brain, though, there can be a cognitive or conscious changing of it because of how quickly it happens. Um, There are not a lot of coaching studies to actually support or negate it. And any coaching studies that there are, you know, there will have been strength sessions happening at the same time. So we can never really say. One of my PhD students did a, um, a study and our subject numbers were not really big enough to be able to say it categorically. But at that stage, and so that was still when we were looking at counter-rotation, by doing a good strengthening program, we significantly decreased the amount of counter-rotation. There was no coaching involved in the intervention. Mm. So I do think if we strengthen the muscles appropriately and also sort out some of the, the major imbalances. We accept completely that cricketers are going to have an asymmetry. They do everything asymmetrically. So I don't which, think we, Which means, just explain that to, yeah. the, to people like me. So that what means that, mean? that um, because they will have a dominant hand that they throw with, bowl with, bat with, mm. they are going to be stronger on one side compared mm. to the other. And we've, I did a study where we looked at muscle asymmetry and we actually found that the people that had back pain were actually more symmetrical than those that were asymmetrical. Oh, been, so it's protective. To a point, mm. I think. And because when we look, I think there have been about four studies that have looked at symmetry, this muscle symmetry in the trunk. Two found that asymmetry was a risk and two found that it was protective. And I think the answer probably lies in the middle. If you become too asymmetrical, you are going to be at risk. But if you are symmetrical, it means that your training impetus has is not there. So mm. I think the answer is in the middle. I think we accept an asymmetry, but we can't allow that to become too significant. So in all rehab programs, I don't only strengthen the side that the cricketer needs. We stre- strengthen the opposing um, pattern mm. at the same time so that they can also decelerate mm. in a controlled fashion. So, yeah, I would like to think, going back to the initial question, I would hedge my bets on strengthening. But that being said, I work with a lot of coaches and we do it together. Mm. So we discuss what the changes are they feel need to be made. So if it's a foot placement, like often we find when somebody has back pain, they start to put their foot in a more side-on position instead of it facing down the pitch. I think personally they do that because they've lost stability in their trunks. So if you rotate your foot out, you stabilize your pelvis because you stabilize your hip. Mm. And there's absolutely no science behind that. That's my opinion. Um, We like hypotheses. It's fine. Okay. So one day I'll go out and prove that. (laughs) But then what we can do if we want to improve the position of the foot, we can strengthen the hip rotators Mm. to try and go with the the, um, coaching changes that they're making. In addition, I would also like to say, if we want their foot in that position before they start the coaching thing, let's activate the muscle that would keep the foot facing forward. So I get a lot of my cricketers, a lot of my sportsmen to do band work before they start, stressing the muscle that I, I want to work before they go and, and play again. That's, so that's activation. It's activation. Yeah. And there's yeah. not a lot of science in that either. But um, So two layman's questions here. This is to both of you. 
we talk, Ross and I have done a podcast in the past, in the past around uh, running shoe technology. So does your body adapt to the running shoe that you do? In cricket, does your body not, if it's trained properly, just not adapt to the needs that it needs? And therefore, if you are developing, adapting at the right pace, you theoretically shouldn't ever get injured. I mean, is that is that a fair comment? I mean, can you just can you can your body adapt to that strength needed? I think if you're doing strengthening, I don't think it would adapt just bowling. Just bowling. So I think there needs to, just because I think the loads are so great, Mm. you know, and particularly when we look at adolescents today, like sport is very different to how it used to be. Kids are specializing so much earlier. So because when you are now playing cricket, you can't do water polo in high school, which would have been a great exercise to become more symmetrical. You're not doing that, so and you're bowling with that one side all the time. So I think the fact that we're specializing early, but then adolescence is a, another risky time because yeah. your body's growing. And I would say, and I've seen hundreds of stress fractures in adolescent cricketers at this stage, and I would say comfortably, and now this again is a guesstimate, about 90% of them, the mother will come in and say they've just grown like 10 centimeters. Mm-hmm. They've just shot up. And it's that whole adolescent growth spurt and the risk around that time. Mm. So I would like us to be measuring all our cricketers. And the minute we see that growth spurt start, pull him back. Don't play. Mm. allow him to de- de- deliver as many balls in a practice. Mm. But unfortunately, it's those good guys that are suddenly getting tall. So they get that release height, which is a performance variable. And they are playing for their school, their club, their Western province. and. Yeah. Not a lot of communication between all the respective coaches, and they just get overbold. So at a time where they're vulnerable, they also are just loading too much. Ross, I know you're gagging to say something about generalists and specialists, aren't you? No, we we will <laughs> definitely cover this. We will cover it, but it does in touch many, on many many podcasts. Is the specialisation is what drives the causes the problem, and that's not unique to cricket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the same for all of them. But because cricket is so repetitively asymmetrical is that even a term but that's that's the problem so a player i suppose theoretically if you you could avoid going through that ceiling if you were really really conservative and cautious and never need strength work but hey it's like real life right you know what you're always going to get those players that can too so and this is the thing is what is we say lateral flexion of x amount of range as a risk factor it may not be for everybody. Yeah, it's not 100% specific. That, that cutoff value yeah. that we have is such an arbitrary number. And that's why we need to be constantly monitoring our players. Just something, you had a second question. I don't know if you want to no, ask you that. Can, you can carry I was just, on. We're talking about back injuries, but what mm. specifically? Because now you've said stress fractures. Okay. And are we saying lateral flexion causes that one or back injuries? Or is there another one? So actually, interestingly, we, the, the injury that has been... Um, research the most is a stress fracture, particularly in an adolescent. Um, they are the ones that, that is the injury that keeps you out for the longest. It's the, got that, it's the injury with the highest prevalence. And that's in the legs and potentially even the back? Well, m- mostly the back. Um, stress fractures well, in the back? Yeah, no, so they oh. get um, stress fracture of an, an area of the back called the pars interarticularis. And really what it is, it's near the facet joints. So most, that's the, that is the part of your back for those people that get back pain when they move backwards, so they're like, like trying to arch back, if that's all. Right that at you, the small of your yeah. back, right? Like a little sharp yeah. pain. Can be yeah. anywhere up 
uh, and along the lumbar vertebra, but it's often often L4-5, the lower part where it gets sore. Um, so that's the facet joint. And when you laterally flex, you close down that joint. So what happens is then that the force is going through a loaded joint. And it causes sort of a turning moment in the bone, and that's what we, we then, it starts to get microfractures and can eventually do have a complete fracture. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sure. I mean, I mean, back injuries in sport is is probably the most common. I mean, Ross, you'll be able to confirm this. Is back injuries the biggest injury if you had to look at all sports? <laughs> it's a big statement I'm making, but is it is it fair to that, say? I think the back injuries might be the most common injury in life. Yes. And then yeah. you overlay yeah. sport onto that. So then your 55-year-old golfer is that's that's the injury he's going to get. Like a rugby player is not majorly concerned about the back injury because they've got yeah. 40 other contact injuries. But I, I would say that's probably accurate. Janine's in clinical practice. You have probably can put a number to it. Well, look, I think um, if you look at lifetime prevalence, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I think backs eventually come and haunt most people at some stage in their careers. Interestingly, the Australians have done a 10-year injury incident study, and the most common injury in cricket is hamstring. Okay. But that's not too surprising because when you are actually playing a sport, those acute type things. Absolutely. There's a narrow window where they are much, much more common. But as Janine says, over 50-odd years of adulthood, Mm. you would consider yourself lucky to escape without a back injury. And it's back, I mean, back injuries, I know we keep on going back to the back injury story, but why is, is it are back injuries more prevalent now than they were potentially 50 years ago? Is it lifestyle that we having to deal with? I mean, as, a, as sports people, I'm, I'm a ride, I cycle and I run. Cycling is a back problem is a big problem in cycling uh, mm, for me. Mm, and is, yeah. and, and I, I'm interested to explore this because it's not just about cricket. This is about sport in general. And is it, Worse now than it was in the past. We need a we need a pod actually on back injuries. Yeah, but no. Maybe we'll get Janine back for that. But let me <laughs> let you answer that question now. No, I, I do think they are becoming. I think well, injuries are becoming more prevalent because I think the intensity of sport that people play is just so much greater. You know, you don't have a cricket season anymore. You play cricket the whole year round. Yeah. I look at my son playing rugby. He plays rugby eleven months of the year. So the, as a schoolboy, so I think there is an intensity to how people play that the injuries are greater but i think lifestyle i think sitting like we're doing now sitting is, is the new one, smoking no it, say, yeah. it is one of the worst things for back pain and you think about a sportsman they still sit a lot so mm. they will for four hours of a day they are super like strong and out there mm. but the rest of their day is often spent sitting and i think it causes adaptations it causes i always say one of my favorite muscles to, to try and strengthen in, in sportsman is their glute max because it i find it to be really really inactive the problem is if it's not active which is your butt muscle yeah you use your back to extend and that's that's a real problem it's a pattern i see in a lot of cricketers that have hurt their back and i think we sit on our butt the whole day so like we sit in this lengthened position 
And then we want to run onto a, a cricket field five minutes after you've sat the whole day in school, yeah. lengthen this muscle. Now you want it to work and power you through the, the delivery stride. So, yeah, I think they are becoming more prevalent and I think it is lifestyle. So consider us sold on the notion that we need to strengthen mm -hmm. not just cricketers, but we'll stay on that today. What does the strengthening look like for a cricketer? Because I'm sure a lot of listeners are clinicians, coaches, parents, but they may be a little bit concerned because strength normally has certain connotations. It means size and bulk. And if I'm Dale Stain or Mitchell Stark, whatever, I don't need that. No, not at So all. we're talking about very specific strength. You've alluded to activation. You've alluded to symmetries and so forth. So what, what does it actually look like when you play out this intervention? Okay, it's one of the first points, maybe just to mention, particularly for adolescents, it really is a strengthening that should be done with a professional. Um, and I think that is where I think so much goes wrong when youngsters go into gym um, and, yeah, I don't know what their aim is always, but they come out looking really buff from the front and really nothing, not much happening behind. And that creates a, an imbalance that is an injury risk. So I think to have these um, strengthening programs done or even constructed for you in the beginning and you do it on your own by a professional is really important. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the reason for engaging the local muscles is that you then are able to move the spine segmentally. And so, so define local muscles in so this context. So that's like your transverse abdominis, okay. your multifidus. Um, we use the pelvic diaphragm and the diaphragm. Um, and that is really, we call that retraining the cognitive phase. It's really about switching the brain on. It doesn't take a long time, but if you don't do it, what happens is that you constantly now start to hinge on one level. So you've still got your local muscles like blocking your spine. And the spine doesn't work in an arc anymore, which is how it was designed to work it now starts to hinge over one level. And that's when you will get injured. So you don't want someone to strengthen like that because they'll then mm. hurt themselves. So local muscle activation first, and it's not three weeks of activation. I will start strengthening on the same day that I activate that muscle, just obviously low, uh, sort of low tone strengthening. Then the strengthening that I would recommend. Just, just, just to take a step back. When you talk about activation, just give an example of what an activation looks like, a practical one. Okay, so when we want to switch on transverse abdominis, because we know it works as part of a chamber with multifidus and your pelvic and um, pelvic diaphragm and your actual respiratory diaphragm, we need to be able to activate transverse abdominis. The problem with athletes is if you tell them to slowly draw their transverse abdominis in, because it would act like a corset. What are they your cues to do that? To tell them to draw it in? Like what sort of, I mean, I've actually been treated by Janine for the, uh, for the, for the listeners. So <laughs> Just I've, I've heard this from yeah. exactly the same person okay. before, but what are the cues you're okay. giving your patients? So, so what we do is we don't really tell them about transverse abdominis drawing the stomach in, because a sportsman's going to want to use rectus abdominis, the big six fat muscle to do it. And so then we've immediately lost the Cue. Research will show you that your stability muscles are activated 50 to 100 milliseconds before any other muscles. So we want them to be able to fire on their own without the local muscles. So we use the pelvic diaphragm clinically a lot. And that the cues there are for a woman, you tell them to the movement that they would do to slow urine flow, so like the contraction of the pelvic floor. And for men, it's as basic and it's written like this in the literature as the movement that would lift their scrotum. 
So that's the pelvic floor. And when you do that and you pop- I'm doing it right now. So oh, is there everyone. we go. <laughs> so is everyone listening to this podcast right now, whether you're in your cars, your offices. There we go. Yeah. And so Transversus has had a burst of activity around the world. There we go. So And, and really that activation stimulates the pelvic floor. And as clinicians, we check the Transversus abdominis and it gets recruited at the same time. So that is something that a trained clinician has to do with you. So, and it, as I say, it doesn't have to be done for ages. We can't do that with sportsmen because they, they will honestly get bored in a week of doing that. Yeah. But so, that allows the spine to move segmentally. So it's almost like you activate that and you've, you've sort of put now up the scaffolding. 100%. It then allows the movement to happen around it. Yeah. So that's phase two, is it? Yeah. You, you, and then yeah. you start movement. And what they're doing in that process of activation, once they've gone and done that, set of activation exercises at a, at a higher level of sport, they would do those every time before they went onto the field? Um, perhaps not trans unless, well, if they'd had back pain, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but preventative. The, the, the idea with the transverse abdominis is once you've switched it on, the hope is that it stays on. What I get all my um, bowlers or patients to do is to sort of touch, do it every now and again. So just like every two or three weeks mm -hmm. to actually do a session of isolating transversus abdominis again so that we don't look at fatigue or the fear of injury or anything like that switching it off. Muscle's amazing. The fear of pain switches that muscle off. Mm -hmm. sure. So I get all my bowlers to make sure like at least once a month that they are doing a session of that. And I can watch some of them on the field. And when they are taking a longer loop um, to recover their breath, I will drop them an SMS and say, you haven't been doing your, your stability training. And they're like, how did you know? And you can see it because they can't recover their breath as much. So it has a, like a performance component. Not everyone's that easy to see. Some, and yeah. you just get to know players better. Do you think the, on that, do you think a lot of recreational joggers go out and run their 30 minutes and they just suffer for 30 minutes? They can't breathe. They feel uncomfortable and pleasant. Do you think this is the fix for them in many instances? Or we're talking here about complex movements and maybe look. I think so. I think it is a complex movement, and it's definitely not a fix at all. Yeah. Um, I'm I've obviously did my research on it. I really do think it's a muscle that is really really important. But if I just did that and I didn't strengthen the the big sure. global muscles on top, sure. they would still get injured because they wouldn't. The big muscles are what draws the force away from the spine, dissipates mm. the force. Okay. So I think it is a combination of both. I have been seeing it a lot in runners. Mm. Um, so yes, it, it is something we commonly see, as you said earlier, 80% of the population have back pain. Mm. So that we see it as a common dysfunction in sportsmen is not surprising because mm. pain switches the muscle off. Yeah. So then it's to move on to strengthening the global muscles and there we've got to be specific. Global muscles being the big muscles. The big muscles. Yeah. So it's your, like your six pack muscle, your mm. obliques, um, your bigger rectus spining at the back of the, which I think is particularly important because it's nice and close to the spine. Um, and here, what is really important is that we cannot give a program, a generic program to everyone because what some people might be weak with glute med, some it's glute max, some it's erector spining. The, the profile of the weak muscle is very different in different people. Mm. Um, I find glute max to be one that is really poorly activated in cricketers um, because they've got this extension injury and we we assess them using a test called the prone hip extension test 
And what should happen is that the glute max should actually be able to extend the hip. You lie on your tummy and you extend your hip. The glute max should work with a little bit of comp um, contribution from your hamstring and the opposite erector spiny, which is your back muscle. But what we find happens is that the back muscle on the same side contracts and tilts the, the, the back. So it's actually the, the back muscle is trying to do hip extension mm. and very little happens in glute max. Mm. So when we go to strengthen that muscle, it's not as simple as just giving a glute max strengthening exercise. You can't just get someone to squat because we have to activate that muscle because the pattern that the body remembers is to use erector spiny. So mm. one of the big um, exercises that people use is Superman when you extend your leg and opposite arm when you're on hands and knees. But the point is, if you have got the pattern where you're using erector spiny to do the movement, you're just going to retrain the wrong pattern. Yeah. So it's number one about retraining the right pattern, activating the right muscle, and then strengthening it. And then the next probably final point would, I don't think our strengthening is nearly hard enough. Mm. I think we really need to load our cricketers and make sure that they are strong. Your point was about not wanting to build up muscle bulk. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I, you, we don't have to have them in the gym lifting huge loads. But body weight is amazing. <laughs> you can do a huge amount of, of strengthening just with the body weight. Um, and we just we, we do more high repetitions with a slightly lower load, but which also will help strength. And then I do think there is, and this is not my area at all, I would use a bikineticist to do this, but because bowling is so explosive, we need power. Mm. And you can't have power if you don't have a base of strength. So, um, yeah, so as you can see, it's not something that can happen overnight. There's a process to it. But if started early, you transition through a number of those phases. Some of them happen at the same time. Mm. And then part of what has come out of, we have designed for Cricket South Africa a preventative, some preventative programs. So, so for now, we've got BAC, which is based on a number of research done by researchers locally um, in the country, as well as internationally. We've got a strengthening preventative program for throwers, um, so for the shoulder, and also a hamstring program, which is that's largely based on overseas findings and actually findings outside of cricket because we don't know... We haven't. We don't know what the risk, particular risk factors are then. So, what what is that preventative? I mean, I know we're pushing a lot to try and kind of come up with mm -hmm. a practical um, way of doing this because I think for most of us, we don't have access to people like you to go to a physio. Mm -hmm. So, a mom looking after her son who's sixteen years old, who's showing some promise as a fast bowler, won't always be able to get to a physio. Yeah. What do they do? In other words, how do they manage the process of staying uninjured? and strengthening themselves when they can't maybe access a high-performance coach? Oh, that's a, uh, you know what? I worked with um, Vince van der Bell for a couple of years, and he was amazing. He, he agreed with me because I'd got to the point where I thought our youngsters were just not strong anymore, and he said, absolutely. He used to wake up every morning and do sit-ups, push-ups. Um, there were three things he did. I can't think of the third Squats. thing. Squats. Could have been um, just basic strengthening, you know, mm. and so they, that would be a start, you know, just do like some basic strengthening. Problem with push-ups and sit-ups is they're very much in a linear path and that's not how cricketers move. They mm. need rotation. Medicine ball, weighted rotations would be another thing. Um, 
I'm, I'm always very anxious about an adolescent boy going into the gym to just strengthen himself. Mm. Um, I watch, I go to, when I go to gym and I watch what has been done, I, an exercise done badly is almost more, it's almost worse than not doing anything at all. Mm. And we see a lot of that. So yeah, to start with safe exercises like push-ups and, and sit-ups might be, you know, just a start of being strong and, and, and having strength. I'm sure that the, this manual, these these ones you've just spoken of, will be available online. Yes, absolutely. So, they are not online at the moment. So, they so are in, about in the next to go month online. Or two, absolutely. Like any young cricketer or any parent of a young cricketer could go there. So that'll be Cricket South Africa's yeah. injury prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Just Cricket South Africa site. Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, be... I work for World Rugby now, and we've just rolled out our own injury prevention plan, also called Activate. So people could look that up. And you'd be amazed at how basic some of the exercises actually are. So mm-hmm. we've got some for neck strengthening because in rugby, they reckon isometric, which is when your neck's, your head's actually not moving, but your neck is active statically, is a key predictor of uh, injury. So you could literally put your hand on your forehead and then push against it and push back with your head mm-hmm. and you're activating that neck. They reckon that might already have benefits for the person. So... There's that one. There's a, there was a soccer one called FIFA 11 yeah. Plus, which had exercises. And if you spent 10 minutes on the internet, you would find 30 exercises you could pick and choose from. Yeah. And the exciting thing is, like that FIFA program, um, they actually, they almost incorporate it into the warmer. Yeah. So it's a conditioning warmer. Yeah, the Activate, World Rugby's Activate one is the same. And it's graded. So in the first month with new players, you do the basic stuff and then you advance the levels as you get a little bit more fitter, stronger, older and so forth. So, Absolutely. And they are, most sports now have recognized the importance of this and they, they're doing something. So people can find these yeah. if they are at a loss for seeing a professional. Yeah, and it's literally, it's 10, 20 minutes and it, yeah. it can change things fundamentally. Just overall body strength Absolutely. at the end of the day will protect you. Coming up elite sport has its risk of injury just by being the level and intensity of player. Lower socioeconomic status are worse at judging line and length. Increasing our base of fast bowlers. Just to, just to investigate a little bit about the, the performance aspect, I mean that's obviously something you're very focused on. If you're competing at the very top end as a, as a fast bowler in world cricket, is there an argument to say that at that level you're you're at odds performance is at odds with the health of the of the individual is it is it is that unescapable uh, yeah i think that's a very good point i i actually think elite sport has its risk of injury just by being the level and intensity of player what Absolutely. is we didn't even this this should have been the first question what is the risk in cricket what is the likelihood that a professional cricketer will get injured in a season um so it's much less than rugby. Yeah, so sure. so when so when we look at those kind of injuries, it, it is less. But the prevalence, so the length that they're out of the game is quite significant, particularly with back, and we're even finding now with the sort of the side strains and stuff, they they are out of, right. of play quite a lot. Definitely, we've just finished a shoulder study um, looking at shoulder injuries in cricketers, and the elites were far more at risk. Just so, by being elite. So whether it is that they've played longer, because so if we look at, you know, they've they've gone through the ranks of franchise cricket and they're now playing for the Proteas. So whether it is the duration of that group, 
Um, although yeah. if you look at the ages between them, they're not fundamentally different. Um, or whether it's just the intensity and the demand on the body in elite sport. Yeah. I'm not sure, but elite sport definitely carries more risk um, in a number of the injuries, other than the stress fractures in, in, lumbar, in the lumbar spine. That is an adolescent thing. And so they do think that is very much a growth-related, um, re- there's a growth-related risk to yeah. that. And one of the reasons being that the spine, particularly the area where it is, we're getting a stress fracture, is doesn't ossify until into the 20s. So ossify is getting hard. Mm, so you actually soft are bone being loaded, yeah. loading on soft bones. Mm. So their age becomes your risk factor and it's the younger age. Mm. So, so returning to Mike's question and to link it to something you said earlier, the context was that there are some technical adjustments that actually improve bowling performance but worsen injury risk. Mm. I would imagine that, for instance, the braced front leg might be one of those. That's exactly it. So just, and correct me if I get this wrong, but pivoting over a straight front leg increases the speed mm. because it's effectively a, a more effective catapult. Absolutely. But the injury risk goes up. So you've got a tension between performance and injury. Very much so. So what is quite interesting there, you want the knee at ball release to be straight, as straight as you can. So the ideal that is proposed is that you would want to land on a slightly flexed knee, a more flexed knee, absorb it, absorb the force on the flexed knee, and then extend as you release the ball. So interestingly, in my group of 45 adolescents that I looked at, only three could do that. Do Everybody else either landed with a straight leg and kept it straight, so yeah. that's a risk, or landed on a straight leg and collapsed into mm. flexion, yeah. um, or just yeah landed in flexion. But only three of them could actually land on a flex knee and extend it. Just out of interest, as, as a fan now, you're watching World Cup, let's say you mm. go home and you watch, who's bowling that makes you go, that's beautiful and effective and efficient? Mm. Like I, in this in this context. Well, I must say I love KG's bowling. So I'd, that's that's uh, Rabada for yeah, the non yes, cricket. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I and I was very fortunate fortunate to be able to evaluate his yeah. bowling um, action, and he just has a, an amazingly economical. It's fluid. Eh? It's beautiful. Mm. So that is really when you can look at him and think that is beautiful, and and so. Um, yeah, he's had his problems within his back, but you know that then again is load plays yeah. a huge role there. So when we talk about load now, we're not talking about the six times body weight loading. We're talking about the accumulated load of absolutely. bowling, twenty four balls in an IPL game every third day for six weeks, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So there's, and I mean, there's been a wonderful study by John Orchard which looked at bowling load. Um, in the short term, in the long term, career workload and how that impacted injury. And the frustrating part there is that sometimes a, a certain load is protective of a certain type of injury, but for, a, for something else, it's a risk factor. So that, that's, I think, answering your, speaking to your point a little mm-hmm. bit like, what is protective for like a muscle injury might actually be a risk factor for bone injury. And you sort of get caught in that no man's land. It's how to find that cent- central corridor of load that mm. is going to be the optimum one. Just on young bowlers again, on, in terms of load, would you have a limit to the length of the run-up for a young bowler? Does that change the risk? 
Like if we said four steps maximum up to 18 or something. That's interesting. I would... Um, does, does the length of a run-up change that. the injury risk? No, so, getting, so the, length of the, run up, the length of the run-up, if it is used to build up speed, so if the mm. length is constantly getting faster to, uh, to get the crease, is associated with increased bowling velocity. So run-up speed can... Mm. But that's not directly length. So very often yeah, we do yeah. take youngsters who have this long run-up and we look at them it's, and they're actually running the same speed yeah, the, the whole time. the last 30% of it is actually redundant. So yeah. we actually then do cut it down. Yeah. But I can't say per se that there is a link between the run-up length and, and injury. Again, we know when you run, two, two, three times your body weight goes through each leg so yeah yeah, if we are looking particularly in youngsters to decrease load if they've got an abnormally long run Mm. yeah i mean just let's look to change even challenging my own idea is that if you shorten the run-up let's say up to 16 four steps max because the player still wants to bowl fast because it's an advantage he might actually then try and apply more force at delivery so what you lose an injury risk from speed, you might actually just transfer somewhere else. So maybe it doesn't work at all. Yeah. No, That's where these things get so complex is you think, let's fix problem A, and actually all you did is you mm-hmm. created B and C. Yeah. And I think the other problem that we yeah. have when we – so we have research and it shows you that, like say, the acute chronic workload is relevant, strength might be relevant, biomechanics is relevant. I think our danger is when we don't apply all of them and monitor all of them. So suddenly workload monitoring becomes the big focus and that's all you do. Like that that frustrates me because Mm. workload for you may be um, six overs per practice, but for you it might be eight because you're stronger. We don't actually... Yeah, yeah, we've got to see everything in context of a whole as much as possible. And that, that is the challenge because I think research has popular themes all the time and that's where and and admittedly that's where sport goes and they grab on Mm. because they think it's a the silver bullet it's going to make the difference and they tend to drop the other things that they were doing before instead of adding it yeah and that i tell you what that doesn't do much for the coach's confidence in scientists either because absolutely especially when it's load and you go to the coach and say this player needs to stop now and the coach why he's fine he's not injured no, because the latest, and then you become all data-driven and blind to the holistic. Coaches tend to be quite holistic people, and scientists tend to be narrow. So there's this automatic inherent tension between them, and this chopping and changing paradigms does no <laughs> does no favors for the coach either. No, absolutely. And to me, I say to all the clinicians that I teach and stuff, you work with a coach. Mm. Um, I think sometimes as clinicians, we, or even as researchers, we think we know more. But actually, I've learned more about bowling biomechanics from coaches than I have from any research study I've done or read. Mm. So I think we need to make sure we're harnessing what they know and work with them. And then, you know, then we look at the athlete as a whole Mm. instead of just these parts of them. Yeah, that's true in every single Mm. sport. That's if there are scientists listening to this, like stop telling and start listening. Mm. Yeah, because basically the experience is part of the is almost more important than the research to some extent. Because yeah, so your job, your job as a scientist or even I guess a research clinician, is to try to enhance the quality of the coach's thinking, which means filtering out where he might not see his own biases and so forth, and to guide the thinking. But it's never to tell 
what, no, what the coach needs to do. And that's the mistake that a lot of people, I, I reckon, would make. Tell us a bit about shoulder injuries. I know it's something you've been involved in and you're getting. I know yes. one of your um, uh, colleagues, Megan Dutton, did yes. a research project. What's come out of that? Okay, that that's been fascinating. So I love the shoulder. We do, we're doing it in a number of different sports. <laughs> um, I teach it a lot. I, I, I rehab a lot of people. How so. many bones are in the shoulder? For those of us who are not moving parts, maybe how many moving parts? Two in the sh- two bones, right? Well, well there, there yeah. are seven joints that yeah. that yeah. influence the shoulder. So in one shoulder, in one shoulder, because oh. it goes down to where the the ribs attach to your sternum, because that mm. cont- it directly affects the shoulder. So it's a hell of a complicated joint. Is it so. the most complicated joint in the body? So I think anybody that is with any other joint would say <laughs> their joint is more complicated. <laughs> but I think that. The difficulty the with joint. the shoulder is it's an incredibly mobile joint. So that you can like wave your arm around is actually that mobility um, means you've lost stability. Mm. So the yeah. ligaments are not as um, strong in controlling the movement. And that means that muscles have to control that movement a lot more through a wide range of movements. So that makes it complex. Mm-hmm. Um, is understanding exactly which muscles work at different ranges and stuff. Russell, you're an evolutionist. Well, why do we have shoulders? Well, it all start? The, theory, <laughs> the theory was that the development of that strong shoulder capsule was to allow throwing, which was a hunting adaptation. Mm. Oh, there we go. So then suddenly we didn't have to get up close and personal with predators that would eat us. We could kill them from five meters away. So it was the combination of endurance running. We could run them down over hours mm-hmm. combined with killing from a distance, which sounds brutal, but that's what it was. That would have then given us access to protein and that meant brain development and so on. So the ability to throw powerfully was probably an evolutionary adaptation. So throwing is as natural as we are. Yeah, but when, as it much becomes, as is. when it becomes unnatural is when you're on the boundary and you pick up 15 balls and hurl them back to the wicketkeeper in the space of 30 minutes or yeah. whatever it is. And yeah. now you've, yeah. again, you've taken maybe a natural movement and you've over, over overdone it, you know. So what is really interesting in throwers, so there's been lots of shoulder work in pitchers and ba- mm. in baseball. Yeah, yeah and unbelievable. What, yeah, mm. and so what they have found is when a baby is born, there's an angle in the... Um, where the humeral head, so your the top of your arm, top of your arm yeah. um, attaches to the neck, which then goes into the shaft. There's an angle called your humeral retroversion angle. And when you're born, it's about 78 degrees. And as mm. we go in through adolescent, it decreases to 30. But what they found in kids that participated in little league um, baseball, it only decreased to 48. Now, <laughs> that's just numbers, but what it means is that you have more external rotation. And that's so because if, the muscles that help you pitch are preferentially strengthened and get shorter? Or No, they think the bone changes. So oh, the actual uh, bone, level. the angle of the bone hmm. has adapted to throwing. Oh, wow. And it's, it's hugely beneficial because they've increased external rotation. So they can take the ball further back before they release it so they've got more range to develop velocity and a better sling absolutely yeah. so hmm. and this happens in little leaguers so they have when we measure their shoulders they have this wonderful increase in external rotation so when we megan study looked at firstly just injury in the shoulder and it's a hugely underreported injury because in the past we've looked at really just match time loss injuries 
so where they can't participate in a match or sometimes even in practice. The shoulder injuries actually don't generally keep them out of practice or matches, but what they all do is adapt their fielding position and their type of throw. Yeah, so they just hide it. That has huge implications in performance. So so that was quite a big finding, and we found there was quite a high incidence of shoulder injuries. We had about 18% of shoulder injuries in a single season, which is quite significant um, with regards to previous reports. Do you remember Courtney Walsh? Yes. was a West Indian fast bowler, and he held the world mm-hmm. record for wickets. I think it was 434 at the time he retired, but he couldn't throw at all. So he used to bowl the ball in from the boundary in this big loopy. <laughs> you could take two runs on Courtney Walsh's throw from the boundary. And well, but that is a problem, and that's yeah. where we were talking right at the beginning about <laughs> T20. You can't do that yeah. in T20 yeah. cricket. You get exposed. So... Um, so that was the first thing we found with this study. And then the second thing was that we looked at musculoskeletal risk factors. for. So we did a full musculoskeletal assessment of strength and all sorts of things. And the big thing we found is that we don't have um, external rotation gains. So we don't seem to, and we haven't done x-rays, so we can't say our muscles haven't, our, our bone hasn't adapted, that we don't have this um, maintenance, sort of maintaining that retroversion angle because we haven't we didn't do x-rays but they don't have an external rotation gain and that is distinctly different that sort of means that they they've lost an adaptation um that baseball pitchers have Mm. um, or not lost it maybe they never got it and so one of the things we proposed is maybe fielding um is not focused on enough at school and I also here yeah, I say that with huge caution because all I, we don't need now is for coaches to go out and get their kids to throw all the time. But because cricket is not only pitching, it's throwing, it's batting, and it's bowling, yeah. cricketers will focus on the discipline that they're involved with, which yeah. is usually cricket, I mean, bowling or batting or wiki keeping. And the fielding seems to be done peripherally. So... Maybe it's that the throwing impetus that they or exposure when they're young isn't sufficient to get this increased range of movement. Well, there's a lot more throwing in baseball generally, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. I mean, you're throwing between the the different bases, and obviously the person that's bow, the bowler is the pitcher. And you're throwing, throwing for a different purpose. Yeah. You're throwing for power and speed in baseball, whereas in cricket, mm. that's not always the case. One in five throws might have a performance objective right absolutely i think then the other thing that we also find so there were a number of things that were different generally our cricketer's shoulders weren't nearly strong enough yeah so their strength variables on a number of the measurements were less and i suppose in in a way that again makes sense because we've been speaking about backs we've been speaking about hamstrings we're now talking about cricketers having to have this whole body strength and i suppose maybe that they concentrate on areas which are more to their discipline than fielding. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. But the other thing we did was we measured using ultrasound the space between the acromion and the humeral head. Now that space is where all the bursts sit. And if that space is narrowed, you get something called impingement, which is a classic shoulder injury. We found our cricketers actually... Is that where the nerve gets stuck in? No, well, it's more soft tissue. So it's like your rotator cuff gets stuck there. The subacromial bursas, this bursa of fluid that just gets angry and hot and swollen, mm. and every time and you, you get move that weird it, pinches, ache in your mm. shoulder. Yeah, swimmers get it a lot. Right? Swimmers, a classic. Yeah, yeah. they it's hugely described in them. Yeah. So, 
we've so but we found that their chromohumeral distance which is the measurement we did was fine in fact it was almost on the top end of good but when we then measured their supraspinatus tendon width it was actually increased and was actually a risk factor for shoulder injury so it was almost like they had a, a fatter um, supraspinatus tendon so one needs to then question why is that like that is it that they don't have the biomechanical um, benefits of increased external rotation so they throw more with muscles and so or is it that that tendon is becoming degenerative because we know degenerative tendon thickens that we don't know but that was actually quite a significant finding in our study and it was something that went on to predict injury mm. so we actually concluded that chapter saying that while we didn't find a huge amount of risk factors the cricketer shoulder is not a classic thrower shoulder. We yeah. can't do the same thing to it that we do to baseball pitchers' throw shoulders. And in fact, we, we even then looked at the biomechanics of the throwing. Um, and it is different to baseball. So we need to make sure it's different because we don't have the same amount of range. And the ball's um, heavier in cricket, isn't it? It's heavier. Yeah. So we, yeah, we need to ch ch adapt for that. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of variables that are different. So mm. what we've come out of that is that we need to, our cricketers need to be treated as if they're a cricketer's thrower shoulder and not a baseball. Um, so, yeah, they need extra strength. Out of interest, two questions. I'll, I'll come to the second one if I can remember it. The first one is, is the bowling action so different from throwing that bowlers and batsmen have the same shoulder injury risk? Or does a bowler, because they use their shoulder when bowling, do they have increased risk of shoulder injuries? Um, the classic throw shoulder in cricket does happen across the disciplines. Sometimes the, the fast bowlers, and I actually can't recall the stats straight away, the fast bowlers do seem to have slightly higher risk. But I don't think that's necessarily because of the mechanics of bowling attitude. I think it's where fast bowlers field. Right. So nine times out of 10, if you've just bowled an over, you get put out at the boundary so that you can have a bit of a break. Sure. And so, but Which is great if the ball doesn't come to you, but if it comes to you, you've obviously got to throw it in right. a whole lot. So I think that might have okay. a role, although that is changing now. You know, the, the science around fielding positions is, is becoming a science, not yeah. just where people need to but stay. The injury, I would imagine, is low. I mean, getting a shoulder injury from being a fielder is not like being a baseball pitcher where you're going to throw repetitively. Is it because of the training that causes that? Well, or, we is it is it? Am I? We found a nonsense? seasonal incidence in our franchise and Proteus players collectively of eighteen percent. So they that's a seasonal from incidence from fielding, yeah, okay. and that is shoulder that's from shoulder. Fielding. So that's shoulder from because I would yeah. imagine there's lots of thumbs yeah. and hands and that so, sort of stuff. So with also, that, eight, is, yeah, with that eighteen percent, we excluded um, one traumatic landing on the shoulder because yeah. that that wasn't linked yeah. to like a throw shoulders and insidious it, it comes on slowly so that um, means that in a squad of 15 players three will be injured every year as a consequence of shoulder uh, of throwing yeah yeah so another um, thing that we did was we um, used a KJOC questionnaire which is an overhead a functional ability of overhead athletes and they were markedly reduced so a 90 percent score is it's considered good for an overhead athlete and to find an overhead athlete <laughs> so that would be a swimmer 
a tennis player, a volleyball player, and anyone. Somebody is putting their arm over their yeah, head so to perform above the Above your shoulder height. Okay, yeah. right. right. Um, so, and they were way below that. Some of the, the franchise scores that we had were like in the 70s. And so that shows that their, their function is actually compromised in their shoulder. They may not have reported the injury, yeah. but they are compromised. And so that has this performance component to it that mm. I, I don't think we've even started to unpack. I remember my second question was that that external rotation that you see in pitches because of that bone mm. remodeling, restructuring, yeah. is that only beneficial? Are there any downsides to that that you wouldn't want to induce for other reasons outside of actually throwing? Okay, so, so what is interesting is with that increase in external rotation, they lose internal rotation. Okay. Um, so... And the general feeling has been you have 180 degrees of rotation. So if you increase it in the one direction, you lose it a bit in the other. In the other way. But it's 180, that's fine. The problem is when the increase in external rotation is so great that you almost lose all your internal rotation. You can also further lose internal rotation if your capsule is tight which sometimes from repetitive throwing, it can get like that. And our crickets had, cricketers had marked reduction in internal rotation. The problem with that is once you've thrown and your arm decelerates, you move into internal rotation. So if you don't have any, at some stage, something's got to knock on something, mm. and that would be the beginning of impingement. So I, I do think there is a downside at the end of that range or if combined with a tight posterior shoulder capsule. So in our shoulder preventative program that Megan and I put together after a thesis, one of the things we have is a posterior shoulder stretch mm. to try and stop that being an issue. They even found there was, there's been some research that did a, following a session of throwing, that internal rotation decreases. So we do, just through um, having a session of throwing without pain, yeah. we do decrease the range. So a lot of those stretches are to then try and prevent something coming into and should just be part of every fielding session. So, yeah. you know, they should be done yeah. before. Just uh, just moving on, we're getting uh, running short of time a little bit, but one of the things that you made in your, in, in, in your notes to us before the podcast was talking about these visual motor skills in young batsmen. Mm. And one of the interesting parts of that is how it is affected by socioeconomic status. Mm. Explain that, because when I read that, I thought, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. Okay, so what we did was we took a group of 14 to 15-year-old. Um, um, they were representatives, so they were provincial um, cricketers. A batsman, and we got them their parents to fill in a socioeconomics scale. Where there mm. are defined scales that that are available. We then tested them on three different types of visual motor skills. One is a Beery test, which is actually almost like a school readiness hand eye um, test. We did some of the sports specific skill tests: circadian eye movement, um, hand eye coordination, and then we did a cricket's um, specific visual motor skill test and in that we found that socioeconomic status or the level was directly correlated with visual motor, motor ability particularly in the cricket skill so what it meant that those um, cricketers who came from a low socioeconomic background um, actually performed worse on the visual motor skills so what that meant was that they saw they recognized the ball either for length or swing later than those that came from a higher socioeconomic um, 
sure. status. So just on that on that cricket specific skill, would I be right in saying you you basically have the guy in his gear standing in the batting position? Yeah. And in front of him, at a distance of twenty odd meters, is a big screen, yes. which projects a bowler coming into it. So you're kind of simulating what he yeah. sees and decides as a batsman. Absolutely. And then at some point, you're asking him to make a determination. You you cut the clip, yeah. And he's got to say what's the line, what's the length of this ball. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that those under 14, 14 year old boys with lower socioeconomic status are worse at judging line and length than those with high and also worse at the non-cricket specific skills yeah so i, I say they're worse they they see them later which i mean obviously compromises your yeah. ability particularly yeah. if you're facing a fast bowler so they, they see it later um so yes absolutely yeah. and and look we all, all need we must always there are lots of other factors that do come into it but it was really quite an exciting finding in that the visual um, experts that we work with are they say these changes can be modified we can change these you know like any, I mean any reason why between the two of you that is the case uh, I'm still not sure why there's that link in other words mm-hmm. why do people who are poorer not able to have the same visual ability as somebody who's comes from a better yeah, so, yeah. yeah so I, we don't yeah. really know that well, we're going to ask you to throw some yeah. hypotheses in there we love yeah, hypotheses. I'm more comfortable than Janine about guessing <laughs> I okay, reckon Ross, go. Um, when, when we learn these visual motor skills, we're mm-hmm. laying down software, which is dependent a little bit on our hardware, so our eyes and our nerves and so forth. But then we learn software, and that comes through repetition and exposure. Now, if you're never exposed to the stimulus that will help you lay down the software, then how do you ever get it? So if you want to understand why a 14-year-old has a deficit, you ask what happened to him in the first maybe even four or five years of his life. Mm. And is there a possibility, I think it's reasonable, that lower socioeconomic status means less exposure to things that would teach you depth perception, teach you dynamic acuity, tracking objects that are moving? Because simply put, your world is narrower, it's smaller, you have fewer opportunities to engage and to play and to learn through repetition the things that would then later at 14 manifest as line and length of a cricket ball. And in practical sense, I mean, we could talk about, you know, if you're coming from a well-healed environment, you're in a pram, you're seeing the world go by, potentially for less so, you're strapped on your mom's back and you're seeing her back all the time. So is that a... I think all of those are very relevant yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and they are hypotheses at this stage. Yeah. Um, but there are a number of studies that have used that berry test specifically in school-going ages of five to six and they find significant differences. Yeah. Um, in that that visual motor ability, but for um, socioeconomic status again. Yeah, so that, yeah. yeah. So this this, so this patterning. Is. That's what would be concerning. If you if you run sport in South Africa and you have this at that age, then your your investment to solve the problem might not be coaches at fifteen. It might actually be socioeconomic interventions at the age of two or three. But then I mean we, we could we could expand on that and say there are lots of. You know, not we're obviously talking from a South African perspective because we are here, but globally, you know, places like India, there's a huge socioeconomic issue there as well. And um, are we less likely to see batsmen from lower socioeconomic groups than we are to see bowlers, for instance, because it's less of an of an impact? Yeah, well, I think there might. I mean, this is remember, this is one study, and I'm always nervous when there's just one study. We need to do more <laughs> yeah. because uh, we you can get carried away with one point um but i think 
the difference can also come in where in India, playing cricket in the street yeah, exactly. of a soci- yeah. socially impoverished um, town is huge. I mean, that's just how they spend their days. So there is a stimulus So there. The, the stimulus to yeah. lay down the software, as yeah. um, Ross was mentioning earlier, is there. Yeah. It's not, it, it hasn't been it's the South African almost. experience. Yeah. And I think in certain areas it has. Like, for instance... West Indies must be the same, I imagine. I feel yeah. sure, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think the thing that we've taken out of it is that, yeah, we need to now get involved in changing it. Mm. And I think, as you say, earlier the better. So, um, obviously, Cricket South Africa are very involved in this project and getting the information. And so, all of this has been fed to Mini Crickets. And actually, when I evaluated the program of Mini Cricket, many of the exercises we would have included were there already. So, just participating in that which is a real grassroots program, would have had benefits already mm-hmm, in, right. in starting to, obviously the, the toys you play with, all of those things have a further benefit and that, that's a social, um, yeah, financial problem. Yeah. But I think those outreach programs that take sports to communities should all have aspects of this in, in it. Just, just to uh, impress on people the, the, the importance of this, I was reading a study the other day, and this admittedly was in adults, but they took a group of women who had the same visual acuity, so the same eyesight, effectively. You know when you go to the optometrist and he shows you a letter E and he says, which way are the, the mm. what do they call them, the lines pointing? Mm-hmm. That's visual acuity. But the difference was that half these women had very poor depth perception and the other half had very good depth perception. And then they had to do a task where they had to catch a tennis ball that was shot at them from a tennis ball cannon. And then for two weeks, they practiced the catching task, 1,400 catches. And then they were reassessed. And the finding was that the women who had good depth perception improved significantly compared to before, whereas those women who didn't have good depth perception, poor, showed no improvement. So your ability to learn, even when exposed to training, is to some degree constrained by what you start with. So the earlier you can fix it, the better, because pardon the cricket pun, but if you start on the back foot, you may never get onto the front foot. Mm. Yeah. No, I think so it's a, it's, a, it's a socioeconomic problem. And this is where I feel sympathy for the sports because is it Cricket South Africa's job to ensure the two-year-olds are getting adequate play environments 10 years before they ever pick up a bat? Not really, but they are ultimately the ones responsible for delivering the player. It's a, it's a tough one. Any, any any comments on that, Jenny? Yeah, no, I think that's I, – I do. I do feel yeah. for them because I think it is – whenever you have something that's linked to socioeconomic status, the drivers run then money to change situations. But and also cultural yeah. status. At Absolutely. the end of the day, we talked about the Indian players and the West Indian players who might have similar socioeconomic backgrounds, but it's culturally part of their country playing cricket right. in the streets. So the, can the, the sport facilitate yeah. play to overcome – Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the the mini cricket, um, CSA's mini cricket program is an amazing one. And I think it does go a long way. I think it's the oldest program. I think in 1980 it started Mm. with Dr. Ali Bacher back in the day. And I think it's the oldest uh, sort of grassroots cricket program in the world by a long way. And, you know, we did uh, one of my um, PhD students, Marianne Dove, has just completed a study looking at progressing through the talent pathway um, in diverse societies, which was our society. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was fundamental in a number of the people, particularly from the poorer and privileged backgrounds, making it through, 
was access. Mm. And that comes out as one of her main findings. And what mini cricket gives you is access. So it gives you access to the game of cricket. So then you might be more likely to play it in the street. But if you don't ever have access you're in your community, mm. you're never going to change that. So I think that's where that plays a huge role. Yeah, yeah. My final question, and it's a kind of a slightly more broad-ranging question, looking at the amount of games the players play, we're looking at 2020 cricket and the sort of the shorter format of the game. For you as a somebody that loves cricket, are we seeing the, the, the sort of the, the age of the super batsman and the death of fast bowling? Of real fast bowlers, those Brett Lees, the Alan Donalds, those kind of guys. Are we, are we seeing, is that clinically not possible anymore, given the amount of pl games the players have to play now? No, I'm, I'm going to say definitely not. We can't allow that to happen. <laughs> Might be heading that way, but we can't allow it to happen. I think what we've got to start doing is increasing our base of fast bowlers in any, in any environment mm. so that we can start rotating players and so that if you know kg's played three games on a trot that we can give him a, a, a game off because we've got a like for like um bowler who yeah. can and i think if we can do that so we can drop this high acute workload over a long period of time that we can um we can actually make we can keep fast can bowlers keep those guys going yeah keep yeah, because it would be sad so. to see those kind of guys go. Yeah, well, I just think it, yeah, if that <laughs> happens, then you've all, you've lost half of cricket. So we can't, and mm. yeah, we definitely can't let that happen. <laughs> and so I think we need to look at number one: what are all the things that we can do to assist them with that high, high workload? And that's where I really believe good strengthening programs. There was a study they did looking at um, cricketers' strength over a season. So they mm. obviously got. Significantly, there were significant improvements in strength were measured in a number of parameters during preseason, and that decreased significantly throughout the season. It doesn't happen in rugby and soccer because the stimulus of the game, number one, is high enough of high enough intensity to maintain the strength. But also, they play one day, yeah. so you have although that is even changing. I mean, they are playing more and more matches, but they have more rest days between. If you're playing a five-day cricket game, it's mm. quite hard to find a strengthening day. But that being said, I think there is still something to be said for a cricketer at the end of the day doing some trunk strengthening exercises. Yeah. Um, so I do think we can be doing more to assist them, even with the high workload, to protect them against injury. Ross, other than learning that you need to pull up your scrotum once in a while, <laughs> what have we what have we deduced from today's podcast? Uh, I I just think it's been fascinating for an hour to just explore such technical details. Yeah, I mean, when you describe to us the process of lateral flexion and which muscles, I mean, just you think about all these things that are going on and how you're trying to understand them. It's just fantastic to listen to someone who understands A, B, C, D, explaining the whole alphabet. What an unbelievable. Yeah. So, and yeah. I tell you, when we start these podcasts, and for those of you listening, we always say we're going to try and do this in an hour. At the moment, we're on our 24 minutes. So just going to show you how these discussions get away from us. But it, it has been absolutely fascinating. And Janine said at the start, I don't know if I've got an hour's worth of stuff to say. But <laughs> I mean, could go on for another hour easily. We easily do the five-day podcast. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Janine Gray, thank you very much for your time. Oh, Professor Ross Tucker, fantastic having you along as usual. But uh, yeah, we'll see you, see you next time. 
follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 